welcome to Woodlawn. We're so thankful that you chose to worship here with us this morning. Joe and Laura are on vacation this week. They went and visited their family um, up north for Thanksgiving, but he'll be back next week. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Carmen Harper, and I serve Woodlawn as an associate pastor. Let's take a moment to pray before we begin. Holy Father, thank you for meeting us here in this place this morning. Help us surrender all that we are to this time. May we ever be excited when we enter this place at the very thought of hearing from you and experiencing your presence. Lord, take my efforts this morning and use them to bring your, about your will. Let the words that come out of my mouth be straight from your heart this morning. You're so kind and loving, and I pray that no one will walk out of this place without growing in that truth by some measure today. Use this time for our good and your glory, Father. Touch every heart and life today. Bless the words you have laid on me and all those who hear. In Jesus' perfect name we pray. Amen. Now, as we heard earlier, today is the first day of the Advent season. Now, if this is a new concept to you, <clears throat> Advent begins four Sundays prior to and ends on Christmas Day. The word Advent simply means arrival. During this time, we are celebrating and looking forward to the arrival of Jesus that culminates in the lighting of what we call the Christ candle, the middle candle on Christmas Day. So in honor of the expectation of the arrival of Jesus, both the long-awaited Savior and his much-anticipated second coming, I want to talk about why he came. I'm going to take the scenic route through the Old Testament to get there, but that's where we're going this morning. Now, in the church, we have this theme that we talk about a lot, <clears throat> but I don't think we fully understand it because we say things like marriage is not just a contract between two people, but it is a covenant that the, that couple makes with God. But that doesn't explain what a covenant is. It makes it sounds like it's a contract that we create with God. And there may be some truth to that, but it's also so much more significant than that. The idea of covenant relationships between God and his people begins in Genesis and continues through the book of Revelation. In fact, it is because of the covenant that God makes with his people in Genesis that we can be assured that the prophetic words of Revelation are absolutely true and that nothing can stand in the way of them happening. I feel that it is safe to say that most of you read your Bible. And if not, shame on you. <laughs> so you pick up your Bible and you read and you realize that God uses common everyday things in order to teach deep spiritual truths, right? As an example, Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 13 about a sower who's planting seeds. Well, what the parable is really about is the condition of people's hearts and how they receive the seed of the gospel. So Jesus taught in this manner because he knew that people around him would understand the picture that he was creating for them with his words. These people did not have a Publix where they could go and purchase their food. They grew their own. 
And if they didn't, they understood what it looked like to do so. They were farmers and fishermen. They worked in vineyards. So when Jesus taught them, he compared spiritual things to the things that he knew, that they knew in order to drive the point home. So Jesus, being good, could have spoken and taught any way that he wanted to, but this is the way he chose to do it. He chose to use the world around them to teach them the deep things of God. So this was not a new concept. God had been doing this since the creation story in Genesis 1. When God spoke to every writer of every book of the Bible, he spoke in terms of the culture and understanding that they had in that moment in time. This is why Bible scholars will tell you that when you read the Bible, it was not written to this culture into the 21st century. It just wasn't written that way. And the Bible cannot mean today what it did not mean when it was written. This is why we have so many differing uh, ideas about what the Bible says. It has to be left into its context and its place within the biblical canon and its place in history. To deeply understand biblical truth, we need to have an understanding of the culture within which it was written. Now that we have all that squared away, we can begin to speak about covenant. In the ancient Near East, covenants were everywhere. It was a very common idea that most people would have understood. They knew how covenants worked. So knowing what they already understood is going to help us understand this concept as well. Covenants worked in a couple of different ways in the ancient Near East. So you could have a parity treatment, a treaty, sorry, which was essentially an agreement between two fairly equal nations where they agreed in writing that if one or the other would attack, were attacked, that the other would come to their defense. This would look like me making a treaty with Cameron that if either of us were attacked by an outside force, we would show up and we would fight for each other so that we would have a chance to survive. This is not the type of covenant that God made with his people. And that is because we are not equals. The second type of covenant was one between what was called a suzerain, which is a mighty nation that makes a treaty with a nation that needs the suzerain's help and provision in order to survive. So in these types of covenants, you would see a great disparity between the parties. This is what it looks like when God makes a covenant with his people. Now, there are a few things about covenants that are vitally important for us to understand what God is doing when he makes a covenant with us. So during a covenant, there is always the promise of land being given to the person who is less, the vassal. So that is why when we see God making a covenant with Abraham, God promises to give him a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, a covenant also creates a familiar relationship between the parties where there was not one before. How many times in the Old Testament do we hear God saying things like he does in Genesis 17, 7? It says, and I will establish a covenant between me and you 
and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you and to your offspring after you. This is God making a covenant with Abraham. I'm giving you land and I'm giving you a relationship where there was not one before. So here's another important factor about covenants. They were always put down in writing and they had a particular format. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is going to sound familiar to you. The format would be this. First, what was called the preamble or the title to the document, and this is where the suzerain was introduced. Secondly, there was a historical prologue where the suzerain recites all the things that they had done for the vassal. Third, there would be stipulations or obligations that were imposed upon the vassal, which in in the case of a parity treaty would be loyalty, tribute, money, warriors, if needed. Then there would be a provision for a periodic reading of the treaty before the people, lest they forget what they had agreed to. A scribe would then sit down and write out two copies of the agreement. The suzerain would take one. He would go into the temple of his particular deity, and he would swear oaths before his particular gods. And then the vassal would do the same. There would be a list of witnesses at the end of the document, which were always the particular deities that were worshipped by the parties of the agreement. These were followed by blessings and cursings that would take place upon the vassal if they would not keep their end of the bargain. This is where it's a bit strange when you're talking about a treaty document, right? The words that were used when you talk about obedience and disobedience were love and hate. It was reckoned as love of the vassal if they were obedient to the suzerain. So I'm going to show you how this looks in Scripture. We've been talking about putting it down in writing, right? So let's take a minute to look at the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai after he'd brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. And they're heading for the promised land, this land that they had prom- uh, he had promised them. This is not anywhere close to the first covenant that's in Scripture, but it's a perfect re- representation of what I've been talking about. So Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1, says, I am the Lord your God. We just learned who the suzerain is. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's your historical prologue. He's just told you what he's been doing for you. Now the stipulations, you shall have no other God before me. And so he continues through the rest of the Ten Commandments. You may know that from the story that there were originally two stones. The documents were written on two stones. And in our North American minds, we imagined that God had written five commandments on one and five on the other, but this is probably not so. All ten were written on each because you had to have two copies of the covenant. The first two were broken, so God has Moses write them again. And because he did not need a copy, both copies were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So who witnessed this event? Deuteronomy 30, 19 records it this way. 
This day I call the heavens and earth as a witness against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there is no God but Yahweh. So when he made a covenant with his people, he swore before all of heaven and earth, all of creation, which is his temple, by the way, Remember that part? The Caesarean would go into their temple. God reigns in a temple that he created with his own hands that encompasses everything that we see. So what about the other things that I've mentioned? God reiterated the covenants he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here, promising to give them land. Remember, that was one of the first things that we learned about covenants. But the most important part of a covenant is that it was always sealed with a blood sacrifice. So to make a covenant would have been called cutting a covenant. So let's look at the portion of covenant that they're talking about in Genesis 15. Beginning at verse one, it says, we see God making this covenant with Abram before he called him Abraham. Now this is so good. You know what covenant looks like? You are going to start to see and recognize these patterns. So let's start. Verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? You ever done that? God makes you a promise and you question him. That's the question we've like, likely ask as well. You know, God, how can I trust what you say? Does the Lord still feel about Israel the way he once did? Or are we, the church, now his people and maybe Israel's not his people anymore? Well, let's see how God answers Abram because it's the same answer to the questions that I've been asking. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old. I got to tell you, I learned this this morning, so it's not in here, but I'm going to add it. I, I, I didn't learn it. The Holy Spirit downloaded it into me this morning, but Jesus was 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was in ministry for three years. And here God is asking for the sacrifice to be three years old. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in half, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep and a thick and dreadful dark into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation 
They serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, God is saying to Abraham, this is how you can know that I am telling you the truth because it's my promise to you. But God didn't stop there. Covenant always requires that blood sacrifice. And we see from the text that God had Abram sacrifice all these animals and then place them into a row with a space in between. This was a corridor of death, so to speak. Now, it would be the obligation of the vassal to walk in between those animals and to reiterate all the promises that they had made in the covenant, but then to also call down curses upon themselves if they didn't obey. I want you to get this. This truth is going to teach you more about God's character maybe than you've ever known. God placed Abram in a deep sleep. And look at what happens next. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Y'all don't miss that. God's spirit takes the place of the vassal. He passes between the pieces of sacrificed animals. And God is saying to Abram in covenant, if I do not fulfill my promises to you, may all the curses that have fallen on these animals fall on me. May what happened to these animals happen to me. In other words, if I don't keep my word, may I die. What a God we serve. God did not die, and he cannot be less than. But here we see him placing himself in a position where he says, my words cannot fail, and if they do, let me die. God cannot break the promise he made to Abram, to Israel. That is a resounding no. In order to do so, he would have to die, and that is an impossibility. Now, I don't know how that hits your heart, but it absolutely breaks mine in the best and sweetest way. And it sounds like the best news we could ever hear. And that is the old covenant. It covers everything from Genesis to Malachi. God's great love and faithfulness on display. What a privilege to be the nation of Israel and have this covenant relationship with God. Now let's go back to the beginning. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and we've been looking for that reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to institute a new covenant, a covenant between himself and his church, a covenant between himself and every single one of us. So what does that covenant look like, and how could it possibly top the first 
how could it be better than God being willing to call down curses upon himself? The King James Version says it like this, in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Christ became the curse for us. Every portion of the Old Testament is brought into the new. Old covenant is brought into the new. In Matthew 26, 26, Jesus introduces his disciples to the new covenant for the first time. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus, as our suzerain, made a familiar relationship with us where one did not exist before. And he has promised us the land beyond this one where we will reside one day. In response, he asks only that we love and obey him. Now, here's the most powerful part. He did not ask for us to seal and to slay some animal to seal the covenant. He became both the sacrifice and the curse so that we could be free from sin forevermore. Now, this begs the question. Knowing all this, how could you not love him? And if loving him means obeying him, how could you not do that as well? Everything we do in the church is a response to what God has already done. We did not come here today to give God something that he had not already given us. We came here as a response to his covenant. And if what I have said to you today makes you want to renew your covenant with God and it makes you appreciate more what God has done for you and the magnitude of his love and this covenant relationship that he has made with us, I'm going to pray and then the band's going to play. I want you to come. I want you to fill this area. There are prayer places in the back. I want you to come and renew your covenant with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take the words that you have spoken today and seal them in the hearts of those who have heard this message. I pray that no one within the sound of my voice will ever again doubt your promises now that they know the links you are willing to go to on their behalf. Lord, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who does not have a covenant relationship with you today, capture their heart right here, right now in the name of Jesus. As I speak, make it very evident to them that this covenant is for them, that you are for them, and that you are unconditional and you are extravagant. Reveal yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
And if they have been moved by this knowledge of you, Lord, I pray that you will give them the gift of faith to believe and that they will be gloriously saved. Help them submit to your will today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.